0: So imagine this, it's 3 a.m. and I'm dead asleep and the fire alarms go off in my dorm at Texas Tech my freshman year. Now, it's a little problematic because I'm on the seventh floor of my dorm. And so I'm laying there, kind of with this existential wrestling that's happening, trying to decide, is this a real fire alarm? If it is, then obviously I need to get up Walk down the seven flights of stairs, because when fire alarms go off, elevators don't work. Walk down the seven flights of stairs, stand in the cold West Texas wind, wait for them to determine that in fact there is no fire, and then walk the seven flights of stairs back up to my dorm room. Or I could trust that it's probably not actually a fire and just go back to sleep and take my chances. And so I lay there and I wrestle and I go back and forth and back and forth about what should I do? Should I heed the warnings and go downstairs or should I trust that I'm smarter than the fire alarm that's going off and playing the chance and probabilities of whether or not this is an actual fire? Now a little bit of backstory, this happens like almost every weekend my freshman year at Tech, because you know, inevitably somebody would come in from a long night out in Lubbock, because there's not much to do in Lubbock, and in their jolly and joy, they would pull the fire alarm, you know, somewhere around 2 a.m., 2:30, 3 a.m. So this happened enough that you were like, oh, "Not again." But every time, there was this like lingering. But what if this time is the real time? You know, it's kind of like the story of the boy who cried wolf. So in this particular instance, I said, fine, knowing that like if I didn't, I was going to have to figure out how to sprout wings really quickly because there wasn't going to be an alternative if this was actually a fire. So I get up, wash all the acne cream off my face, walk downstairs, stand outside with like 20 other people because everybody else is still asleep in their dorm rooms, told that there's no fire, and then you walk back upstairs. This kind of dilemma and this kind of vignette is exactly what we're about to read in the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're introduced to a character named John the Baptist, and what John the Baptist does is similar to what the fire alarm does in my dorm. It alerts me and alerts us to the potential danger, and it causes us to wrestle with this question, what are we going to do? What should we do? Should we stay in the comfort of how we're currently living? Or should we recognize that to continue to do so puts ourselves at risk and potentially at the risk of a fire? And do we make preparations and get up and do something different? So let's jump into the story. If you have your scripture journals or if you grabbed one as you walked in, pull them out. How many of you brought yours back from last Sunday? Hold them up. Yeah, look at that. That's good. How many of you are like, oh, they're giving out a second scripture journal? (laughs) Yeah, I thought there might be some of you. That's all right. We want to make sure that you can follow along. Okay, we're going to be, if you're in your scripture journal, page 24, if you're in a different Bible, uh, we are in Luke chapter 3. Now, we're skipping the first two chapters of Luke because we read through those during Advent. This is the birth narrative of Jesus. Jesus. And so, if you want to read that, then you have the opportunity to do so starting on Wednesday when our reading plans kick off through the season of Lent. So, here we go through Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonidas, and Lucinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, not Abilene, unfortunately. <laughs> now, real fast, in case you're just confused at what's happening, Luke is just listening to people who are in charge. So Tiberius is the emperor of Rome and the Roman Empire. And then there's four people who he has divided up this larger region and put in charge of. So one is Pontius Pilate, one is Herod, the other is his brother Philip, and then the last one is Lysanias. Okay, And then it names the regions that they're in charge of. That's all he's doing. He's kind of creating a socio-historical context for us to understand the story that's about to launch. Verse 2, he continues on. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas... And then here we go. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, if you were raised in the Jewish faith, or if you've been around church long enough, and you heard this phrase, the word of God came to, you would immediately kind of recall the stories of all of the prophets of Israel who God sent his message to, who would then go and deliver that message to God's people. Now, this is exactly what Luke is saying is happening with John the Baptist. What's of note, though, is God hasn't sent word to any prophet in over 400 years. There's this kind of dark period of silence where God doesn't share any messages with any prophets to deliver to his people. And then after 400 years, what we see happen is The word of God comes to John, and John's out in the wilderness. And so, this is what John would do, just like all the other prophets did before. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is what a prophet would do back in their day. They would receive a message from God, and they would go and share that message with the people. And typically, this message was always very similar. This message was, you've been doing this, that's wrong, you need to change and do this, otherwise there's going to be a consequence to the way that you've been living. Now we see lots of these around periods where foreign empires would take over Jerusalem and put the Israel people into captivity and slavery, and so there was lots of conversation around the reason this happened or the reason this is about to happen is because of the way that you're living. You need to change, do something different, heed the alarms that are going off. You can't just stay in the comfort of your bed, in the comfort of your life, engaged in the way that you've currently been living. So John picks up in this same theme. And so it says, he goes into all the region, he's sharing this message, and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we got to do a little... uh, defining of terms here before we go much further, because some of you have grown up in a church that used language like this regularly and frequently. And so we may not all be working with the same definitions of the same vocabulary words. So I want to kind of walk through a couple things so that we're all on the same page as we continue through the story. Now, the first thing that we have to understand, uh, baptism is not something new that John is doing here. Baptism existed in the Jewish faith. And typically the way that it would be done is they would have large pools of water called mikvahs that people would enter into fully submerge themselves and then come out cleaned and renewed of all of their ritual impurities. It was kind of this process that they went through so that they could enter into the temple and engage in worship of God. So there might be certain circumstances you might have had to have touched a certain animal that was unclean, you might have engaged in touching money that was unclean, there might have been something that you participated in or were exposed to that made you ritually and ceremonially unclean, and to eliminate that barrier between you and your ability to be in a relationship with God, you would have to kind of go through this bath, be cleaned, and then you'd come out the other side. So you see this as like this kind of theme that feels kind of similar to the way that we talk about baptism today. The way that we understand baptism today carries a lot of those kind of original kind of tenets and bits of theology. We recognize that in baptism, there is a before and after that baptism marks. There's a before of the old way of living, the old patterns of our lives. And then there's a cleansing that happens to us. And then we're, we come out on the other side, new, different, clean, in right relationship with God. And John's saying, listen, you have to do this There is something that I am calling all of you to do in preparation for something that is coming. So this is kind of something, like an act that you have to go through that gets you ready for what's next. And what he says is there's a baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not just about ritual and ceremonial impurity, but there's a way that you're living that you need forgiveness from. And this idea of forgiveness back in this context was not in the same way that we kind of forgive each other, like, hey, I'm sorry I did that. Hey, I f- don't worry about it, I forgive you. It was, a, it was a way of putting it to the side. It no longer stood in between you and God. And so what John is saying here is, listen, there's a baptism that we all have to go through so that we can enter into right relationship with God. Now, the baptism isn't the thing that puts you in right standing with God. It's what the baptism signifies, that puts you in right standing with God. And this is why he calls it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this word sin is something that we have to unpack as well. Most of us carry around a definition of sin that sounds something like uh, don't make mistakes, don't break God's laws, don't do bad things, right? And so typically Christianity gets characterized as a religion that focuses on this whole list of things that you shouldn't do. And if you do those things, that's sin, that's bad, and we shouldn't be doing that, right? This is kind of the idea that we have when we think about this word sin. But I think a a deeper understanding of sin is needed here. Because if sin is only about avoiding mistakes and avoiding doing things that we think is wrong we can become so focused on the way that we are avoiding things that are wrong and still miss what God is calling us to. And we'll see this throughout the Gospel of Luke. There will be situations and circumstances where Jesus has conversations with the religious leaders of the day and age who are so focused on this narrow definition of sin, this narrow definition of don't do anything wrong, and yet they miss this larger criteria that I think better defines sin. And that criteria is, I think sin is more properly defined as a failure to love. A failure to love God, a failure, failure to love others. And so what we'll see throughout the stories of, of Luke is there will be times when Jesus has a conversation with the religious leaders and says, okay, yeah, technically, you're avoiding doing anything wrong. But the larger criteria of loving well Of loving others or loving God, you fail on that criteria. So you've actually missed the bigger picture. And this is kind of at the essence of sin, this is the essence of the definition and the idea behind sin. It just means a missing of the mark. You fail to grasp what you're supposed to be doing. So if you imagine kind of if I had a bow and arrow and a target and I'd shoot the bow and it would be slightly left of the bullseye. That would be sin. That would be missing the mark. I'm off target. I'm not living in direct alignment with how God is calling me to live. This is the same picture, which is why you can be technically correct of not making any mistakes and fail the larger category of living the way that God calls us to live by loving God and loving others well. And the reason that we use this definition of loving God and loving others well is because Jesus summarizes all of scripture when he's asked, God, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important rule that we're not supposed to break? The religious leaders were trying to trap him in this conversation because they wanted Jesus to pick one rule. And so Jesus' answer is he gives them two. He says, you should love the Lord your God. Say your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And so in essence, Jesus takes all of Scripture and summarizes it and condenses it into this this criteria of are we loving well? Are we loving God well? And are we loving others well? Now, think about how this plays out in our life. There are things that we know are sin. Things that we know are wrong. But when we add in this extra dimension of because it's a failure to love well, I think it helps us understand why sometimes. I think oftentimes we're handed in church this list of kind of like morality, like you should do this because if you don't, it's bad, right? And it's a lot of finger wagging and you should do this because it's good or you should, shouldn't do that because it's bad. But I think what oftentimes we miss is, okay, but why? Why is it bad to do that? Why is it wrong to do that? And behind all of that, if you dig far enough, what you'll find is because it's failing to love well, failing to love God well or failing to love another well. The reason that we should be kind to one another is not because failing to be kind is just a sin and then we stop the conversation there, but because by not being kind to one another, we fail the criteria of loving them well. Like, and when we participate in behavior that doesn't love God well, doesn't love others well, guess who it ends up inevitably loving well? Ourselves. And this is kind of what ends up happening with sin, is we place self-love above the love of God and others. St. Augustine describes it as our lives, when we're caught in the grip of sin, our lives curve inward upon ourselves. We're focused on us on what feels good to us in the moment, on what we want in the moment, on how we want to live in the moment at the expense of everybody and everything else. And so why is greed bad? Why is pornography bad? Why is lying bad? Why is murder bad? Why is adultery bad? Not just because they're rules that God gave us and by failing to live up to that, it's a sin, but because when we engage in those patterns, our lives begin to turn and curve inward on ourselves because it's all about love of self, love of our desires, love of our needs, love of our wants, not the love of other people and not the love of God. That's, That's the definition of sin that we need to use as we continue to read the gospel of Luke. And so what John shows up saying is, listen, I want you to come and be baptized a baptism of repentance so that there's no longer these patterns of living that are focused on yourself that's separating and standing between you and with God. And that leads us to the last word that we're going to talk about is repentance. In its Greek, what it means very simply is to change your mind about something, but more profoundly, it's to think so differently about life, to think so differently about how you're living, about your actions, about your conduct, about the values and priorities you have, but to think so differently about them that you change them, that you think differently, and you act differently, and you love differently. And so, John's saying, Listen, I want you to come into this water and come out on the other side having gone through repentance. Because then there's nothing that stands between you and right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. Now, repentance, though, is a process. And there are movements in it. Not really steps, but there are movements. There are parts to it. And here are the four parts of repentance. Because understanding this understands exactly what John is trying to accomplish. Because what he's doing is he's alerting us to the risk of staying as we are. He's alerting us to the danger of our current patterns of living. And he's saying we need to do some preparatory work so that we can be ready for a different kind of life as Christ arrives. And it's the perfect message as we get ready for Lent because Lent is the season of preparation, preparing our hearts and our minds and our lives for the coming of Christ on Easter Sunday. And this is what John is trying to get us to understand, is we need to begin to prepare our hearts and recognize the way that we're living and the way that that's misaligned to the way that God is calling us to live. So here are the four parts of repentance. It starts with conviction. This is just the general awareness, the knowledge of all of the places in your life that your life is curved inward. Ways that you aren't loving God well, ways that you aren't loving others well. Some of us, maybe you call that a conscience, you know, that nagging feeling that you carry that you shouldn't be doing this, but it's okay because other people don't know or nobody's going to know or nobody will find out or, you know, they'll never know, you know, that kind of thing. Then once you begin to have knowledge of your sin, then there's contrition, that part that eats at you where you start to feel sorry for what you've done. You start to recognize it actually is wrong and feel guilt and maybe a little bit of shame over the fact that you've been doing this. What's important though is for some of us we just kind of go through this process over and over and over again. This is particularly what's so like dangerous about addictions of any kind is you recognize wrongdoing you feel guilt and shame about wrongdoing and then To cover up the feelings of guilt and shame, of wrongdoing, you just engage in the behavior further. And so, down and down and down and down the spiral goes. That's not what John is calling us to, and this isn't what God wants for us, is this spiral of shame. It's acknowledgement that what we're doing is a failure to love God and others well. And then to feel sorry about it, like, i I hate that I did that. I wish I didn't do that again. And then, confession. To be able to acknowledge, like, I messed up. I made a mistake. Think about in your own relationships how the process of healing a division in your relationship often comes when there's that admission of, of wrongdoing. When they say, hey, I messed up. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? The relationship can move forward, but so often we have these divides in our relationships because this process doesn't happen. There's no acknowledgement. There's no sorrow. There's no like, like contrition on the part of the other person. And they don't admit it and acknowledge that they were at fault. And so it's conviction, that moves to contrition, that moves to confession. This is why it's important at church that we have time for collective prayers of confession. We do this as a part of our communion liturgy. When we come together as a body of people to take the life of Jesus We recognize that to put everybody back into right relationship, we've got to admit all of the ways that we haven't acted in accordance to that. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to express our sorrow and guilt over that. And then we have to say it out loud. We have to confess our sins to God and to one another. And where that moves us to next is change. Now, Pay attention, though, because change here is not about an avoidance of sin, although it includes that. But if, if change just leads you to the avoidance of sin, you stay in the same place that the religious leaders stayed in at that time period. They're just trying to make sure that they don't do anything wrong. But they're missing the important part of loving well. And so change in this process of repentance leads us to acting out In love, loving God and loving others. Okay. That's a lot for the first three verses, I know. Kind of heavy on Super Bowl Sunday. You were like, man, maybe we'll talk about football and touchdowns and things like that. But I think it's important for us to understand because these are some of the places that it's easy to shy away from. It would have been a whole lot easier to read about Jesus' baptism on this Sunday and talk about how he is God's beloved son. But I don't, I think that's doing us a disservice. We have to talk about the ways that when we're living in ways that aren't aligned with what God has for us, we have to engage in a process to remedy that and to rectify that. And to, so to properly prepare ourselves to live into the life that Jesus brings, to live into heaven here on earth, there has to be a process of repentance. And then John uses this really cool metaphor that he borrows from the prophet Isaiah. And so he says this in verse 4. Let's read. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is John referring to himself or Luke referring to John, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is what John is trying to do. Now, this is a kind of a common metaphor that was used at the time, because any time a king would be arriving in a new city, they would send somebody ahead to let the town know that the king was coming. And the job of the people... A part of kind of the advance team of the king would, after the messenger had gone ahead to let the town know that the king is coming, they would make sure that the road was ready so that the king could get there easily and smoothly. And what Luke is saying that John is doing is the same thing for Jesus. The king is coming. He's letting us know when there's some preparation that has to be done. Now, the preparation isn't done on the ground to make sure the roads line up and there's no potholes and anything like that. But the preparation is done in the human heart, and in our lives. Straight paths, valleys filled, mountain and hills made low, crooked become straight, rough places become level. Think about the topography of our hearts. There are some places where we have mountains of pride and arrogance, where we don't need God to speak into. It's like, God, no, you can handle these things, and you know I've got a sick loved one, and I could use your help here, but all this other stuff, God, I've got this. That has to be made low. The low places where we're stuck in that shame spiral over patterns of behavior that we can't seem to find our way out, that has to be lifted up. All of the ways that our life isn't, is misaligned, is caught in sin, we've missed the mark of how God has called us to love others and God well, that has to be straightened out. Because that prepares our hearts for Jesus. He goes on. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you children of snakes, is what he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a really uplifting set of scripture this morning for you. If this is your first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here today. Let me tell you very quickly what John's trying to do with this because he is addressing kind of the the cultural ethos of religious people in his day and age. And then I'll kind of show you what it looks like for ours. What John is saying is repentance is a process that leads to change, just like we saw the parts of, of repentance. It leads to a different way of living. And so John says, "Listen." You have to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Your life has to look different. Otherwise, that's not actually repentance. You're not actually in good relationship with God if your life is not lived, aimed towards what God is calling you to live towards. Because the cultural ethos of that day and age was, well, we're descendants of Abraham. There's nothing else for us to do. All the work has been done for us just by virtue of our birth and ancestry, we're always going to be in right relationship with God. We're good. We don't have to live differently because we're descendants of Abraham. And what John says, he's like, listen, that doesn't mean anything. If God wants more descendants of Abraham, he can turn a bunch of stones into the descendants and children of Abraham. What matters is, are you producing fruit in your life? Are you living evidence of change and of this repentance that he's calling us to? I think the modern-day equivalent for us, for most of us, is those of us who say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe. I believe in Jesus. And for us, we think that's enough. Just the profession of faith, the intellectual assent that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, for a lot of us, we, just, we park the car there. We think that's enough. And what John would say to us, just like what he said to the religious people of the day and age is, if it doesn't manifest in your life, then it's not real. If there's not fruit that is evidence of the change in living, then you've got to re-examine what you've been doing. And he uses the metaphor, the way that they would clear fields for future harvesting, is they would... Look at the orchards, look at the vegetation and the plants and the trees. Okay, which ones are producing fruit, which ones aren't producing fruit? The ones that were not producing fruit, let's chop them down, we'll build a big bonfire, burn those up, and then we'll try again to create new trees that bear fruit. I think sometimes this passage can get twisted to try to scare people. But I do think there's a reality to, are you or aren't you? producing fruit are you or aren't you living a life of change in keeping with repentance and to all of this the people ask one question that i think a lot of us probably ask and the crowds asked him what then shall we do and ultimately this is the question that we should carry into lent jesus is coming We need to begin to prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives for the arrival of Christ. And so for you, what is yours to do? What needs to look different? What mountains need to be made low? What valleys need to be raised? What paths need to be straightened out that are crooked? What rough spots need to be made level in your life? the way that you're thinking about how you live, your values, your priorities, your relationships, and ultimately your heart. What do we need to do? What do we need to do to prepare for the coming of Jesus? I'm gonna end with this quote from Barbara Brown Taylor. She has written this terrific book on sin. You know, if you're in for some light reading after this morning, this is what she says. She says, when we see how we have turned away from God, then and only then do we have what we need to begin turning back. Sin is our only hope, the fire alarm that wakes us up to the possibility of true repentance. Friends, this morning we have a chance to start that process, to start that process of repentance, to begin to start to mentally identify all the places in our life that need to look different where we've missed a mark, where we've fallen short, where we have not loved God and others well. To acknowledge our sorrow and guilt around those things. And then ultimately to confess together so that we can go from this place living different, bearing fruit that keeps with repentance. And so instead of praying for you this morning and praying for us to close in prayer, I'm going to invite us all to participate in the prayer of confession. This is the same words that we use during communion, but I invite you to join with me as we confess our sins to God and to one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, friends, hear the good news. God's love for us transcends even our wrongdoing. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen.